Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you today with Crystal McAfee. Crystal is the president of the Crohn's and Colitis Canada Peel Chapter. She herself has IBD and is here to share her story, her journey uh, towards empowerment and advocacy. And I, I welcome her today, and I think you'll really enjoy this episode and learn not only about Crystal, but about how we as healthcare providers can show up and support those managing chronic conditions day to day in the best way possible. So grab your drink of choice and join us. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm happy that you're here. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm very excited. This is my first podcast. Oh my God. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. Like you're so eloquently spoken, uh, you're on social media. You you write beautifully. Uh, you're you're super inspiring. So it's hard to believe it's your first one. I'm sure it won't be your last. <laughs> um, but I'm glad you're here today. I wanted to chat with you uh, just about you, your story, your journey, and I know you're a strong advocate for the IBD community and how you've come into this evolution, basically, and you know, how that's going and how you continue to evolve that way. Um, I had the opportunity to to chat with Crohn's and colitis a couple of times. And just a great community, I, I felt like so welcomed by everybody. And, and I didn't hesitate to reach out to you. Although I was a little shy about it. But I, did, I didn't hesitate to reach out to you. Um, once I got to know you a little bit. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, yes, Crohn's and Colitis Canada is an amazing community of support. I've I found them to be truly wonderful from the top down. Yes. Very rarely do you see an organization where people are so committed to a purpose yeah. and a mission. And and you feel that from Lori, who's our CEO, all the way through national office, through the DCs, through our field um, people. And then the chapters, it's really about a shared purpose to find ways to support our IBD community, to advocate on their behalf, to empower them and to support them in any way that we can. Because um, an IBD journey is very unique to the individual and it can be very challenging, but having a community of support makes it a little bit easier. So that's really how we see our role. Yeah, and it and it truly is how how it is. Like super supportive and not I would 
based on my own experiences, not of just people with IBD, but also just anybody coming in to offer support. Um, just everyone I've communicated with has been wonderful. So um, yeah, so it's, you know, it just it speaks to the integrity of, of Crohn's and Colitis Canada. Um, so tell me more about you first, though, Crystal, tell me about who you are, what do you want us to know about you? First and foremost, I will always define myself as a mother. Um, I have two incredible sons who are, um, I wasn't supposed to be able to have because apparently I'm sterile mm-hmm. as a result of some uh, uh, medical procedures earlier in my life, but um, they are my heart and soul. But in terms of who I am outside of being a mom, I'm a Crohn's warrior of over 25 years, and I'm dedicated to raising awareness for our IBD community in the hopes of also decreasing stigma around it. For me, it's about creating the space to identify and to celebrate our IBD community, which is really vibrant, and to support them through advocacy, through awareness initiatives, and also to raise some money so we can find uh, find a cure. Because as someone who has uh, who's had IBD for a very long time and has children, I can I can tell you that. IBD is not the legacy I want to leave them. Wow. May I ask, like, are, do your, do your children have IBD as well or? They don't um, as of yet, but my my children are still young. They're eight and 14. So they're still relatively young. There's, there is the possibility that they may develop it. Obviously um, that's a concern of mine uh, as, as a, as a mother, you never want to see your children suffer. And I wouldn't want to see them live the life that I've lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of my driving force around um, my, I, what I see as my purpose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my work with Crohn's and Colitis Canada has given me the opportunity to build a network of individuals who I can reach out to, to learn from, and we can work together to create awareness and, and, and hopefully help find a cure yeah. for Crohn's. That's beautiful. And just supporting the next generation, you know, not assuming, you know, your children will get it. But I think as a mother, and I'm not a mother, so I could be wrong, but, um, you know, you're, you just want the best for your children, regardless, right. And like you said, you know, little suffering as much as as possible. In life. <laughs> um, so can you tell me more about your journey, like your story leading up to your diagnosis? I know that um, it's been many years since you were diagnosed um, and just kind of to where you are today and to, in this moment right now. So that's, that covers roughly 34 years. So I'll try to <laughs> Okay. So it's more than I thought. <laughs> Um, 30, oh, sadly, 35. Apparently, I can't do math. <laughs> time is <laughs> um, flying. Time does fly, yes. Yeah. So uh, initially, I became ill around the age of 10. In those days, you know, being young, I didn't have the vocabulary to really describe what was happening to me. So when I presented to the pediatrician, it was stomach pain, diarrhea, pain um, associated with eating. Mm. And being tired. I, and I I didn't have the word fatigue, but that would have been the more correct term. You know, I remember being a kid and watching the other children at recess and they'd be able to just run for like 15 minutes or they were playing soccer or skipping or what have you. And they, they could just go all out for 15 minutes. And I would watch them in awe because there was no way that I could do that. I I would need a nap halfway through. Oh, really? (laughs) So I I knew something was different about me. And and the fact that I had so much difficulty around food, you know, I would watch other kids and they could eat whatever they wanted. And I would look and say, well, if I ate that, I'd be in the bathroom in five minutes. So I knew something was wrong. Anyways, so I presented with these symptoms as well as abdominal pain and bleeding and whatnot for nine years to my pediatrician. And he initially chalked it up to the fact that I was an overachiever. I was a very hardworking student and I I really, uh, my sense of identity was very much um, defined by my ability to perform academically. And so he simply thought it was stress. I was putting too much stress on myself. And that's why I was having these um, stomach issues. 
and later I, you know, as a parent, I learned that it's not uncommon for, you know, kids when they're feeling stressed or nervous to say they have stomach pain. So it wasn't an unreasonable assumption for him to have made at the time. But the fact that it had gone on as long as it did. Um, and, and so over the course of nine years, I received various, I guess, what we would now deem as misdiagnoses, whether it was um, a nervous stomach, ulcers. Like I, I was diagnosed with ulcers by the time I was 11. Uh, Crystal, yeah. can yeah. I interrupt you for a moment though? Yes. So did your parent, like your parents, your mom or your dad, did they like, did they know something? Did they believe you in terms of your symptoms? Did they know that this was uncharacteristic for a child to, to have these difficulties or like, I was wondering I, if you had that support there. Yeah, that's a difficult question. I would love okay. to say that they, I think they believed me to a certain extent, but they also were raised with this notion that doctors were infallible. So yeah, if the doctor had definitely. said she's just a nervous child, I think it was reasonable for them in that time frame, because now we're talking about the early 80s. Right. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you don't need to put a number to it, it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Um, it, it, was, it was a reasonable assumption. They, they, and, and I think it, it's, it's common in that generation, and I still see it today, where they they see the doctor's opinion as holy and and they don't question it so you know did they know something was wrong yes okay. did they believe that what the doctor said yes and i i don't i don't for a moment think that there was any you know anything malicious there or that they didn't want to see it i just think that they believed what the doctor had said. Right. Yeah. Cause so, you obviously kept going I, I mean, over the course of nine years, you were going back and forth. So that's, I guess that's what I was wondering. Cause I'm like, it must've been your parents that were advocating as well and, and trying to get some answers with you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, ultimately, you know, it, that, that nine year period, I, I felt like I wasn't, my feelings, my experiences weren't being validated it really left me questioning my own my own mental health, to be honest with you, because I don't know if if doctors always appreciate how profoundly their words and actions impact their patients, because we do hold doctors to such high esteem. And so and if a doctor suggests to you that something may just be in your head, you start to believe them. Mm-hmm. And, and that leaves you questioning what your own experience is. Um, and so over time, I simply stopped going to the doctor because I would it was the same symptoms over and over again. And it was funny because I remember the, one of the last times I saw him again, I was complaining about pain in my, my lower abdomen. And he said, Crystal, you've been telling me you've had pain there for years. Yeah. And I said, yes. And he's like, doesn't that strike you as suspicious? And I said, no, because you've done nothing to address it. But what I took away from that is he didn't believe I was ill. So then I simply stopped going because I I didn't see any hope for a diagnosis. And then eventually the situation grew more serious and he diagnosed me. I did go back and he diagnosed me with with a peptic ulcer and I took the medication for a peptic ulcer, which exacerbated my condition very rapidly. Uh, and significantly to the point where I was, I lost 30 pounds in just over three weeks. My body stopped absorbing food and water. I couldn't tolerate anything. I went from having occasional pain to chronic pain, rectal bleeding. That was mm-hmm. alarming. Um, and I remember going into him and saying, is, do you really think this is in my head? Do you think I, I'm making this happen? Because I can assure you, I don't want to live like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the last conversation I had with him when I took my file and I went to see another physician who my aunt had actually uh, advocated for me. It was her, wow. her doctor. And she said, you ha- please, you have to see my niece. She's dying. And they, they, from my family's perspective, I was dying. And he agreed to see me. And after reviewing the test results and a physical exam, he said, I, I believe you have IBD. Wow. I, said, wow. I don't know what that is. And he said, well, good news for you. And my brother-in-law is a GI. I said, okay. So he, while I was sitting there, he calls his brother-in-law and says, I need you to see her. The following 
morning, I went to see his brother-in-law, Dr. Wong, who I will tell you saved my life. Yeah. Um, ordered an emergency colonoscopy, which pr- was performed the following morning. And then, um, so within 48 hours of speaking to Dr. Chu, I had got, I had gotten a GI, had an emergency colonoscopy and had, um, had a diagnosis for the first time in nine years. I was going to say nine years. Like, I don't think it's easy to look back and think nine years, but like nine years of feeling the way you felt and not getting any answers must've been really like frustrating and exhausting and depressing. It was, and it was very, it was frightening to be honest with you, because this, this idea that it was in my head, Mm -hmm. I, I knew it, I, I knew it wasn't. I knew my pain was real. I knew rectal bleed. Like I can't manifest blood. <laughs> right. I was just going to say like you're bleeding even, right? Yeah. Like it, it yeah. really made me question my own sanity at times. And I would have pain and think, is this real or do I think it's real? Wow. And, and that that's a very scary place to be, especially as, as a young person in your formative right. years. Exactly. And I was just going to say that. And I was going to say like how much I applaud you for taking your file. Like, you know, I, I mean, for you to have the courage after going through all of that to say, you know what, um, I'm changed. Like I need a different opinion. I've got to switch it up. It's, you know, it felt, it felt very serious to me at that point. Yeah. I was starting to question how long I was going to be able to hold on when your body stops when you, you can't eat anymore, when you can't drink water anymore. That was very frightening for me. And also there was this odd sensation and other people, I've talked to a few other people who were severely ill with Crohn's who've had a similar experience where your body starts to quiet and we don't recognize how loud our, our bodily systems are until things start to quiet and you realize that's that's not right. <laughs> that is so interesting. It was, that's it so was a, true. It's an eerie, eerie experience to be in your body and think something's not right. It's not loud enough in here. Wow. Because we don't think about how loud our bodies are. We've no. just grown accustomed to the noise level. Mm-hmm. And yet when things quiet, that was actually one of the most startling pieces for me is like, like, that's not right. Wow. <laughs> that well, that was kind of, well, I, I didn't get that specific sense, but the sense I got when you said, you know, I'm taking my file and I'm going, was that you just, it was like the last, it was like your last bit of hope, right? Like it was like, I have nothing, I have, I have nowhere else to turn. I have no, like no other solution. So I'm going to just try something else. Um, wow. I, I, in the moment I felt like it was, the last, yeah, it, it was a last ditch effort to right. find help. Yeah. Right. And then it was amazing how everything just kind of worked out from there. Honestly, if it wasn't for my aunt, God rest her soul, yeah. um, advocating on my behalf, I, I, I don't think that I would be here. Now I can see why you're such a strong advocate too. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, you've touched on it a little, but um, that's, yeah, that's amazing. I wish a strong advocate for everyone, like at least one strong advocate, friend, family, just a trusted person. Um, it could make a huge difference in someone's life. So how did you, once you were diagnosed, what was your feeling at that time? Did you feel relief? Did you feel... Like, oh my goodness, now what? Like, what was your what was your thought at that point? So initially, there was a sense of relief because finally there was a name to what I had been experiencing. And it and it was vindication that this wasn't all in my head. Yeah. Um, but the relief was rather short-lived when I then found out it was incurable and lifelong. And you know, mm-hmm. so I thought, okay, you know, mixed bag, mixed bag. <laughs> but you know, it, it, yeah, initially, absolutely. It was a relief to be able to put a name to something because again, words have meaning, right? And, and you, if you can name it, you can fight it. Mm, and, love and that. So that was, that was important to me. Yeah. You know, because I, right from the beginning, I had the sense that I'm, I'm going to fight this, whatever it is. I was, I was determined to fight it and, and win because I'm stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> So is that when you're like, so is that when your moment of empowerment kind of kicked in? Like, did you start to take hold of the diagnosis and start to 
learn about it or did you need time to just process it all? Yeah, I, initially I needed some time. I, to be yeah. honest with you, I remember at that point I had been hospitalized and Dr. Wong comes in and he has these glossy brochures on this is what you have and honestly don't ever share those glossy brochures because they are a nightmare um <laughs> good to know <laughs> they really are well now i, I guess that we don't even have them anymore because right. everyone can access everything online yeah but it was it was a little bit uh it was overwhelming to see to read through the glossy brochures of color pictures of all the terrible bruising and bleeding and all the things that were were to come um and that was a little bit overwhelming and i remember flipping the pages going okay okay so this is what i'm going to fight and 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 whatnot and yeah it was it was a little bit overwhelming and I, that first night in hospital i spent a lot of time crying in particular because i and i don't even know why i asked this because i was only 19 years old at the time but i remember asking dr wong like do you will I be able to have children? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, statistically speaking, that the, the numbers are not in your favor. But, you know, it is, it is possible. Eventually you may, but statistically speaking, you know, you, you may want, he was, he was always a realist. And, you know, he's like, you, you're going to have to wrap your mind around certain things. And you're going to have to wrap your mind around the fact that you will be a permanent patient from here on in. And um, you may not be able to go, go back to university you may not be able to hold down a job you may not be able to have children and that those were really overwhelming messages to receive as a 19 year old woman who felt like her life was just beginning I had just started university and I had hopes of a career and a family of my own and so that was that was a little bit devastating and and I spent that night crying and at one point I said well crying isn't going to do anything about this this is what it is. I'm just going to have to deal with it. I'm going to make the best of it that I can. And so it was kind of the following day. I said, okay, so give me back those brochures and let me start reading it. Let me start understanding. And it really started the process of trying to come to grips with it Mm -hmm. because acceptance is, um, while acceptance is critical, it's very, very difficult to get to. And I think it's even more difficult to maintain Mm. because we're raised to believe that as a result of illness or injury, these are temporary matters. You know, you will temporarily be ill or you're injured. If you break your arm, you'll be put in a cast in six to eight weeks. You're going to have it removed. And yes, you're going to maybe have to work on it to get your muscle strength back, but there will be life after this. Whereas when you're diagnosed with a chronic incurable illness, that's not the case mm-hmm. you can do everything right but tomorrow you're still going to wake up sick and that, that that can be overwhelming how did you because really and i like you just said right with um chronic illness it it just doesn't go away right even if there's remission it just doesn't go away um and it's been so many years right that you've been experiencing this ha- I, I don't know um, enough about your story, but things could have gone both ways, right? It could have went to a dark area and it could have went toward, um, you know, more wellness, right? That you would define or more, um, more well-being. So, you know, what was it like, what do you attribute? Um, I don't want, I don't know if the word success makes sense, but what do you attribute your well-being to right now? Like what keeps you on the path of, of going that way? going towards wellness and staying well and empowerment. So I'll be honest with you. I think everyone's journey includes both aspects of it. You know, what drives me to move forward is I don't quit, but that is a personality characteristics characteristic of mine. And that applies to my health that applied to you know, in school. It wasn't enough to be a good student. I had to, I had to be the number one. <laughs> graduate from my MBA program, you know, like that's just who I, that's who I am. I don't quit. I work hard and often to my own detriment. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's a personality characteristic. But at the end of the day, for me, what it came down to is I acknowledge that I may not have a long life, but I'm damn sure going to make the most of what I have. Mm. And that has really been the driving force. 
and I, I try to stay positive. I, I, and sometimes people accuse me being overly, overly positive and hopeful, but, um, I have, I've had my dark periods too. Everyone hits, hits a point of utter exhaustion with chronic illness, with the physical demands of the illness, the mental health aspects of it. Um, everyone has their dark periods as well. But in terms of where I am today, um, I would say that it really comes down to, up until last year, I would have said there was five pieces to it. Now, I've added an additional piece to this in the last year, but for me, remission was really a significant lifestyle change. The first one was around diet and nutrition. Um, and it's funny because when I was first diagnosed, I remember talking to a nutritionist and saying, well, what, what does this mean in terms of what I can and cannot eat? And the advice that was given, and I, I believe is still given by uh, some people today, is if it doesn't bother you, you can eat it. Which is such a funny thing to say. <laughs> so that's not true. You're, yeah. you're just, <laughs> okay. Well, and it's it's funny. It's a gut issue. So obviously, what we consume will impact how we feel. Right. So, um, but it, for me, it's very much been a trial and error piece about what works for me, what doesn't, and that really started with keeping food diary. You know, nice. we. I, now I think they, they call it an elimination diet. We used to call it a low residue diet and then we added. Anyways, you would add a new food and for 72 hours afterwards, you would mark down how you felt about it. You know, did, did it improve your energy? Did it cause bloating? What have you? And so for years, I was keeping these, these journals uh, to see how I felt about food. And as a result, I, I have a very clear picture in my mind of what I can and cannot tolerate. And I stick to that. You know, my diet is based on whole foods. I can't say I don't ever, but I very rarely consume processed foods. And it's mainly, uh, you know, chicken and turkey and things that are easy mm -hmm. to, to digest. Mm -hmm. Lately, I've had to add red meat into my diet because of um, anemia, which I I don't have any, uh, I'm not opposed to, to red meat. It's, I don't have a moral issue there, what have you. Um, it's just hard to digest. So okay, gotcha. <laughs> not to eat it. Um, so yes, so I'd say first and foremost, it was diet. Um, the second piece was identifying and addressing flare triggers. Because for everyone, it's a very unique experience. For me, some people are triggered by food. For me, what I came to realize is it was really based on emotional stress. And we're not talking about stress about, um, you know, a, a deadline at work or school, but something that was uh, deeply rooted in emotional stress. So for me, that meant I needed to train myself to, to stop ruminating on negative thoughts and also cut toxic people out of my life. And, mm -hmm. and that that latter part is, is an ongoing process. <laughs> you know, it's not a one-shot one deal, unfortunately. And it's a difficult one because sometimes people who should be part of your tribe um, are actually hurting you. And so it can be difficult to cut those people out, but that has become um, an ongoing process in my life. Third piece for me was really about implementing holistic pieces to my own care. Um, so visualization and mindfulness. And I consume huge quantities of probiotics and vitamins. And I truly, and I know that the science, I, I always hear that oh, the science doesn't prove the probiotics work. And, and I understand that, but I, what I can say is anecdotally for me, they have been a game changer. Mm -hmm. So I, I do, I, I'm, I'm a big opponent of those. Um, and visualization, it's funny. It sounds, it sounds silly, but for me, uh, it was important to I was one of those people who would go into colonoscopies and ask not to be fully sedated because I wanted to see wow. the Crohn's disease. I wanted to see it. I needed to picture it in my mind um, because you can't fight what you can't see. And I wanted to see it. And I would visualize it getting smaller and like fight. And it's, it's, it sounds, wow. Chris, I know, but not at all part of, part of my healing process and, and mindfulness also just to quiet the, the what ifs. Yeah. That's so powerful. Um, because our what ifs are, are, are scary, especially for <laughs> at this stage of the game, because I'm 20, well, I'm 34 years into illness, 25 years post diagnosis. Some of the really scary complications 
of IBD are uh, statistically standing over my shoulder. So not focusing on that, um, mindfulness plays a big part in that for me. Uh, Also stress management, uh, generally, Uh, I think learning to say no, because one thing I've noticed within our IBD communities, we are a bunch of uh, type A personalities. And we think that we can do it all. And part of stress management and and rest, rest would be another really big uh, component of this, is learning to say no. And that can be hard for us. Yeah, a lot of healthcare providers are also very type A. (laughs) And we try to do everything. We don't even take a pee break sometimes. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So (laughs) we try to get it all done too. Um, So we're all learning from you right now because literally one to five, I'm I'm, (laughs) I'm like remembering everything. I love, I really do love all like this list because it speaks to everything that I believe in as well. So, and well, I think the, the, my last piece, which was what the component that I added most recently, because I follow you on Instagram, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> is weight training. Um, yes. Resistance training is, is, and it's funny because it really started for me um, as a way to address bone loss. I have bone density issues because I, I developed Crohn's in my formative years. And so my bones didn't properly, I guess they didn't solidify. Mm-hmm. And then I spent um, 11 years on prednisone. Wow. And so that has a deleterious effect on bone density. And so we obviously we can't stop bone loss, but we can slow it. And so that's really where uh, weight training uh, came in. And somewhere along the way, it went from something I did to slow down bone loss. And I, I've come to love it. Yeah, <laughs> I've noticed that. <laughs> and you're looking super strong. Oh, yeah, may I add? <laughs> You can't imagine what that, that means to me, you know, Seriously. As, well, because as, as, as a, as a sick kid turned sick, adolescent turned sick adult, I never, I never believed that it was possible for me to be strong. Right. You know, yeah. I was raised to, well, everyone around me and, and in the most loving way possible, not, not to be, um, not to limit me, but just to be loving and supportive. You know, the messages were that you're fragile, you're weak, you mm-hmm. need, need to be cared for. You know, my name is Crystal, and they, and it was kind of a metaphor for me that I was I could shatter and break, yeah. and I, I internalized those messages. And so, starting a weight training program from that perspective was utterly terrifying. Wow! Um, at first. Uh, but I was very fortunate to um, find an incredible coach. Um, and he, yeah, he, he has convinced me that I am much stronger and more capable than I ever imagined. And he's inspired me to see what I can do. So I love, um, I love the coaching component to the weight training. Yeah. Absolutely. And having yeah. someone who um, really understands, and he is so patient with me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's good. That's a good, that's a good coach if he's patient. Yeah. Well, and, and really he's, he's tired of me telling this story, but <laughs> he changed my life in August of 2020. There was that brief period where gyms were open mm-hmm. and we we're training together. And one of the components of the workout that day he had designed was a tire flip. You know, those. Yes. Big- yeah. They're massive. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, okay, we're going to go flip the tire. And he's, talking me through it he's coaching but from my perspective it was kind of like um like a, a peanuts remember the peanuts cartoon when the yes. adults spoke wah, 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 wah. that's all i heard because <laughs> in my head i heard the voices of doctors and nurses past telling me don't overexert yourself you have eight and a half feet of scar tissue you could bleed out and my own voice in my head thinking how far are we from a hospital and could i get there in time wow wow <laughs> And at one point I look up and Andrew's looking at me. He's obviously looking like, what is she doing? All you have to do is pick up this tire. <laughs> Where did she go? <laughs> you, you know, when you've, you've zoned out yes. and, at you and you know, you should say something. And I was so consumed with like fear, Yeah. but I didn't want to say that. And I couldn't quite articulate everything that was going on in my head and part of me is like I didn't want him to know all the things going on in my head because I didn't want him to think I was crazy <laughs> but all I managed to get out was if I can do this it's going to be a huge victory for the girl who couldn't breathe on her own 
And he looked at me and he uttered five words that changed my life. And he said, you aren't that girl anymore. And it was so such a profound moment for me because I had always seen myself as lesser and less capable. And part of me, that fighter component of me has always fought to be seen as equal. And mm-hmm. here's this guy who hasn't known me very long at all, who saw me for who I was standing in front of him, not my past. Right. And it was such a profound moment that I, I flipped that tire. And then I went <laughs> on to do it like 17 more times. Um, <laughs> and Amazing. it was just this incredible m- moment for me. And that night, like I ugly, I'm going to tell you, I ugly cried on the drive home <laughs> because I never, it, it never occurred to me that I could be strong. And that night I kept thinking about this and thinking about how it would have made a world of difference to me when I was laid up in a hospital, when I couldn't breathe on my own, when I was too weak to walk to a bathroom. So even though I was a teenager, I had a catheter, when I couldn't bathe on my own, when I wasn't even physically capable of turning over in, in, in my bed. And so nurses would have to come and they had me perched on an egg crate and would have to come and turn me so I wouldn't have uh, bed sores. It would have made a world of difference to that girl mm-hmm. to know that one day you could be healthy again. One day you could be strong. Having a role model would have made so many of the challenges I faced easier. But in, in those days, we, those of us with Crohn's didn't live to be in our late 40s and 50s. You know, we died as a result of complications, the most common complications complication is actually colon uh, colon cancer, right? Right. And so those role models weren't there. And so here I am laying in my bed thinking about this, again, ugly crying. Yeah, I I spent a lot of time ugly crying. (laughs) And it was at that moment that I actually emailed uh, Crohn's and Clytus Canada and and said, I want to be a volunteer. I want to do peer Mm. support. I want to do anything I can to support the kids that are laying in, in hospital beds right now. Oh, who need to know that there there is hope because there's nothing worse than the only thing worse than being chronically ill is feeling like there isn't hope. I was just going to say it sounded like you just nobody gave you hope when you needed nope. it as a child, right? Nope. And I never knew that that um the story with your coach and everything like this whole experience is what propelled you then to start volunteering and, and yeah. advocating. Wow. Wow. So, like that moment changed my life because it, it gave me a clarity of purpose that I had lacked before. And I had previously, I had a career that I was quite proud of and I enjoyed. And I, I took a step back from it when my children were born because uh, they're miracles. And, you know, I've kind of felt like childhood is the limited time offer and work mm-hmm. will always be there. Um, True. And I did love, I did enjoy my work, but it, I didn't, it wasn't, my purpose and it was really in this tire flip that resulted in in connecting with Crohn's and Clytus Canada that gave me that sense of purpose that we need to I was raised to believe that you're either part of the solution or part problem right mm-hmm. and unfortunately I, I'm not a brilliant scientific mind that I can find a cure and I'm not a brilliant doctor who can can heal but I'm a person with a lived experience with a voice who can share a story and if I can touch the, the heart of someone who's having a, a tough time thinking that there is no hope for a good future with Crohn's, then I'm here to tell them there is because, and not to give up because in the dark, in the darkness, and there's a lot of darkness that comes with chronic illness. It's very easy to give up, but there is hope. Yeah. Feeling. It, it can make the biggest difference in someone's darkest moment just that just having that connection or knowing that someone's there that person being you in the community so gutsy strong speaking of strong and strength here we are today um where was that also inspired all around the same time your your handle on instagram it was okay my uh the moniker is something I, I hope to uh, to earn one day. I'm, you know, every time I'm in the gym, I'm like, okay, I got to get a little bit stronger. I got to earn my moniker. Yeah. But um, Gutsy Strong really came about because I wanted to create a space where we could celebrate IBD warriors 
as we know, the internet can be a, a dark place sometimes. Mm-hmm. And there can be a lot of negativity. And so I thought it was important for us to create a space where IBD warriors could share their stories. We could celebrate their wins, but also have those difficult discussions that are really necessary for us to heal mentally from this. Because one of the shortcomings of the way IBD is traditionally treated is we, we, we treat it simply as a gut issue. And it's not, you know, those in the IBD community, well, in the chronic illness, the autoimmune community, mm-hmm. you know, we suffer from higher levels of depression, anxiety, and suicide, suicidality than the, the standard population. And a lot of that is fueled by unresolved issues around medical trauma. Okay. And, but we're, we don't talk about that. And, and, you know, our doctors typically don't talk about that because let's face it, when you are in, you have a, a blockage, we got to deal with that blockage. You know, um, when I was, when, when I was septic, we had to deal with that, not worry about what was going on in my head, but long-term we need to address the emotional aspects, the psychological impact that chronic disease and medical trauma have, because you can't be physically well if you're not mentally well. And from a patient's perspective, you know, I know that uh, for many years, I, I avoided the topic altogether. As a younger person, I avoided the topic because I was afraid of being stigmatized. In those days, you know, this was prior to like the Bell Let's Talk days. And, right. and, and like right now, mental health is openly discussed. But wasn't the case in the 80s and the 90s, uh, mm-hmm. sadly. So there was this desire not to be stigmatized. But the other piece was, you know, those of us that are chronically ill, especially those of us who become chronically ill as children and adolescents, we have this sense of guilt. Um, and we feel that we are a burden to our families. And so when we recognize that we are already um, a physical burden on our families. Sometimes we're a financial burden on them because of the level of care that's required. The last thing we want to do is add to that burden by now saying, I'm also mentally requiring help too. And so it becomes very lonely mm-hmm. and we don't, we don't talk about it. And it's, and it was really actually only in the past year. Um, I had the opportunity to listen to Dr. Dean Tripp, who is doing some amazing work out in Queen's University. And, and he was talking about uh, depression and, and anxiety within the uh, IBD community and uh, post-traumatic stress and whatnot. And it was only this past year, so now like 35, 34, 35 years into this journey that I came to realize that a lot of what I've been experiencing is normal. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that was such... Um, an incredible weight that was lifted because I think part of me, you know, part of that, that experience of questioning your own mental health, you know, am I really feeling what I'm feeling? And well, now I'm also having these other experiences that I know are not normal, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and to hear him say, well, no, this is actually perfectly normal. You, you guys do actually experience this. What was again, like this life changing moment. Like I literally had to, turn off my camera, my zoom, the uh, recording, mm-hmm. because I started to cry. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it, it was such a relief to hear that I wasn't crazy. You validated what you were <laughs> yeah. feeling this whole time. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of us have a lot of trauma and, and it comes up in the strangest ways. Like I just, I had an experience last week because I am, um, I'm now having to monitor my blood sugar. And so I went to the pharmacy to pick up uh, a blood, uh, sugar testing kit and I'm talking to the pharmacist trying to figure out which is the right one to purchase for me and in the corner of my eye I see the peg light box now anyone who's had a colonoscopy can tell you that that is colonoscopy prep that box was 25 30 feet away from me I caught it in my peripheral vision and I'm telling you I could smell it and I could taste it Wow. That's not normal. <laughs> That's heightened. That's, yeah, very much heightened senses there. That's kind of wow. that's kind of odd, right? But yeah. these are the types of things that happen to us and we think, oh, you know, it's just and it's 
it's normal for us to experience these things, but it's also a sign of trauma that we never talked about. We never had acknowledged. And so, you know, when people talk about, you know, what can, what should I do when I, when I'm newly diagnosed? And one of the first things I say is find a community of support because there are things that we understand as much as your friends and family love you and want to be supportive of you. We have shared experience and we can validate that for you. Yeah. And healthcare providers too, like a lot of us aren't going through or have experienced what you've experienced. So, you know, we can provide our support, like you said, on the acute side of things or whatnot. Right. But you know, it's, it's very important for us, though, to also be mindful that likely when you're, you're, when you're working with someone who's dealing with a chronic condition for many years, that there could be some trauma there. And I think, I think it's just, we just have to start asking, and we have to start having the conversation. And if, you know, people are open to to sharing and want support in that way, knowing that it's there because it is there. I, I do think it is there in some cases. I just think, like you said, that neither party is really saying it, right? Um, Absolutely. We're aware of that, the better, because then we can, you know, we can actually initiate the conversation if it's too hard to otherwise, right? Right. Because a patient may not otherwise go down that road. Right. And I know for me, like, because I work on an inpatient unit, in rehab. And it's sometimes it, it, you know, I can be working with a patient. I, I'm, I'm fortunate because I get to spend time with people and I get to see them over the course of time, you know, five days a week usually. And um, I get to know people. And sometimes those things come up later once, mm-hmm. once a rapport is established and, you know, and, you know, trust is earned and um, right. So, and, and for me to be sensitive to that we're like in the beginning anyway, and just recognize like I might have my own hunches and, and I might have my own um, my own feelings there um, based on what I pick up emotionally. But sometimes, like I just kind of, like I kind of try to respect the boundary as much as possible too, um, and yeah, try to meet people where they're at. But also, yeah, just I like- think the best thing is just to put it out there that I'm here to talk and I'm here to validate. Yeah. Okay, well, that's really good for us to know. Uh, you know, I know for me, like, just moving forward, I know, like, sometimes I'll say, you, you know, I'm very, I don't want to say straightforward, but I pick up on things pretty quickly. So from the moment I walk into a room, I can tell right away, if someone's feeling down flat, or I'll just say you're not yourself. And then, you know, can you, you know, is something going on? And then usually something will come up from there. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm very fortunate, because I get to I get to have those interactions. It's not, um, it's not in and out for me. Right. Um, But I don't think it takes, yeah. And it is amazing, but it it also only takes a few seconds though, to pick up on, on people's just on what people are feeling, like the the energy that people are carrying, whether it's, you know, positive or negative for them at that time. Right. Or, you know, or just pretty flat for whatever reason or indifferent. Uh, You know, I've been working for a while now, so it could be from experience too, but I I believe that the emotional piece is a big part of my patient's recovery. And I'm a physiotherapist. So it's, it's a big part of the physical, um, the physical rehab and, in progress that they make. So I, I try to, I, I do a lot of, to- I do a lot of talking with, with my patients too. Um, not just movement. Uh, That's amazing because just, it, it can be difficult for patients to initiate those conversations because of, again, fear of being stigmatized and whatnot. Um, and, and also because sometimes, you know, we've had experiences where we have tried to talk about um, our symptoms and they haven't been validated. And so you become hesitant to, to raise something because you're not sure if it's going to be acknowledged and accepted or, or if it's going to be diminished and ignored. And, and that can be a scary thing, especially for an individual who's unsure to begin with, whether they want to talk about something. So if you then put something out there and it falls flat or on deaf ears, it just discourages you from doing it again. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's amazing that you have that kind of rapport with your, with your patients. Cause I think ultimately that's what patients want is to feel connected that we're a team. Yeah, That's what I was going to ask you. So what do you value um, in a trusted provider? 
Yeah, and it's funny. I've, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately because um, I'm actually I, I need to find a new GI. And uh, again, as I said, you know, I'm 25 years into this, and so uh, relapse and uh, colon cancer statistics are are alarming. And so I need to start building my team now, so mm-hmm. that way when I need them, they're there. And so I have been giving this a lot of thought and. And really what I feel that it boils down to is um, it's a relationship between a doctor and a patient. And like any relationship, it's based on trust. And trust comes from mutual respect and open communication. So for me, I want to know that I will be heard, not just listened to, but heard, if that makes sense. There's a difference, Um, yeah. To say that I'm going to be heard, that my experience will be validated, my opinion will will matter. Um, so I'll be part of the decision-making process as opposed to having something um, like a top-down approach to it. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and also finding some uh, um, a physician who has a similar approach to things. Like for me, I will always gravitate towards a lifestyle change as opposed to a medication. Right. For instance, because that's what I value. That's who I am. Um, but I know not all patients share that. You know, some people just they they have pain and they just want it to go away and make it happen. Whereas I want to understand well, where did it come from and how do we deal with that? I don't I don't want to be popping pills. That's I did that for too many years. It damaged my my port liver. <laughs> um, I you know I had organ issues as a result of we used to refer to as my drug cocktail, which was prednisone in your end with a Demerol chaser. Just, yeah, yeah. 30, hard. 11 that's years tough. of like, that. That's that hard on the body. Like, it does. Yeah, totally. It is. And uh, yeah. yeah, years of being uh, on steroids can also, um, it, it does terrible things to your mood. Let me tell you. Yes, I, so, I've seen that. Um, yeah. You know, for me, I will always gravitate towards a more holistic approach. And you know, which is not to suggest that I'm, I'm against medications. I, I fully support them when they are absolutely necessary. I can tell you that steroids have saved my life. Right. Absolutely. I will never argue that point. And if it came to it, would I do it again? Absolutely. In a heartbeat, because at the end of the day, I need to be able to function. I need to be as, as a person, as a mother. And what's more important to me is is my life quality of life so if it comes down to it i will absolutely go down that road but if there's the option to um to do something more holistic i will absolutely gravitate towards that first so would it also that um just to paraphrase what you're saying um when you're identifying what you value in a provider would you say it's someone who understands or at least acknowledges what you value as you know, as favored treatment approaches, if possible, right? If it's, if it's not a dire situation type thing, right? Or it's like, you know. Yes, I, yeah. <laughs> not, yes I'm not going to be, you know, sucking on an onion, hoping that that's going <laughs> right. to you know, uh, cure cancer. No, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, absolutely similar understanding that I, I, I bring value to the team. And, and my, when it comes to my body, my my viewpoints need to be respected, but ultimately it comes down to a matter of mutual respect and communication, I think. Beautiful. What would you say? I I hear this a lot. So what would you say? I have my own response, but what would you say to the person who says, you know, Jen, I just want them to know what they're doing. I just want the surgeon, the doctor to know what they're doing. I don't care about their bedside manner. I don't care if they're a jerk. I don't care if they're arrogant. I don't care if they don't listen. I just want them to know what they're doing. How does that, after what you've just explained to me, do you have a response for that? That, like being oh, from a patient a from a patient perspective, um, I would like to hear your thoughts on that because it, it, it's an interesting question. It's yeah. not what I've considered before. Um, I would say it, it's it would be situationally dependent. So I have a heart attack. I right. want to know that that surgeon knows what they're doing and right. can go in there and I don't need to explain it. <laughs> it's like, again, an emergency situation, you know? Uh, and yes, at that point, I don't care whether you're, whether you're a vegan, if you voted for the green party, <laughs> if you drive a hybrid vehicle, you know, just, I want you to know what you're doing because you're cutting me open. Right. But 
when it comes to something like chronic care, I think it's a little bit different. I feel like we need to have a relationship. We need to have a common understanding, a common goal. We need to recognize that we're a team. And I want to feel connected to this person. I want to feel that that my experiences are validated, that I'm heard, and that we're making decisions together. So, I, you know, for me, it would be very, it would be situationally dependent. Yeah. Okay. That makes total sense to me, actually. Yeah, that's a great response. Great response. <laughs> um, so if I wanted to be better tomorrow, I wanted to show up better to my patients tomorrow. Okay. What is one thing that you could suggest I, I do um, or be um, tomorrow when I meet with my patient first thing in the morning? Just I have to tell you, I love this question. I really, I, <laughs> do you I love do. this question? I do because <laughs> so often as as a patient, especially when you are a regular (laughs) you start to wonder uh if if you're just a number so it's so lovely to hear a doctor say how how do I show up better for you like that that's 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 beautiful and and it's funny I actually posed this question to a few people I actually posed it on Instagram today oh oh, did you I, I know what it means to me but I thought yeah community speak to this and overwhelmingly there was two two common pieces that kept coming up. The first was around timing of appointments and Mm -hmm. ensuring that there's a sufficient amount of time for us to talk about things thoroughly, because especially when patients are, are ill and they are on a lot of medication, we experience brain fog. And Mm -hmm. so I don't know if doctors necessarily know this, but we often come with a mental list. In my case, I used to actually write out my lists of these are all the things I needed to to remember to say, because I knew when I was taking 32 pills a day, it was very easy for me to forget things. Mm, Yeah. So, And I would go to an appointment and I had 10 minutes and I felt like it felt like verbal diarrhea. Like I was just like, this is everything. And hopefully that, you know, the doctor would be able to put the puzzle pieces together, right? Right. So this concept of having a sufficient amount of time for us to discuss it. um, And then, because especially if you're having that brain fog, it's so frustrating. Like if I've waited six, eight, 12 weeks to see my specialist and I only get 10 minutes of your time and then I forget to mention something that I wanted to, that's an awful feeling. So that kept coming up is um, the time piece and also the listen to understand, not to diagnose. Mm -hmm. So that kept coming up. And another piece was like for me to, it would be to see us holistically that we're not simply, we're human beings. We're not just, you know, a bundle of, of symptoms and, and recognizing the important piece that mental health plays in terms of our overall wellness. And, and because you can't be physically well if you're not mentally well. So that piece, um, and really just about, you know, approaching it as, as, as a team, you know, that we're in this together, that we're not alone. Because oftentimes those of us um, in that chronic illness community feel very much alone. And, and that's scary. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's something I'm like going to definitely um, like just remember a lot of what you said. And I, I try to be mindful of most things. Certain situations like time, again, I'm fortunate compared to a lot of other therapists because I work in hospital, I do get time, uh, but it never seems like enough time, Crystal, I'm going to be honest with you. If I have 45 minutes, you know, I really believe that the quality of the interaction, like you basically said, um, is so important and uh, just taking the time. But I've had situations where I've had to spend like way more time with one person less time with another. And it's, it's like I would do it for either person, right? It's just the the, the nature of the need is so emergent sometimes that, you and know. We, and we understand that. Totally. Know? Yeah. And I find, yeah. And I find it's totally, I find that patients are totally empathetic of that. I actually find patients are super empathetic of our time, of our busyness. They don't, they actually don't want to burden us. And exactly. and sometimes that to the, and I always say, well, that's sometimes that kind of concerns me because then I, I think I, 
sometimes I feel like you're not going to tell us everything. I don't want you to withhold from us either. Or you take risks. In my case, um, some people getting up on their own if they're not yet ready to do that safely. So sometimes they t- they put a risk on themselves that um, because of those systematic issues, right? They they kind of take it on for themselves. So uh, just reminding them that you know <laughs> we're there <laughs> um, seems to be helpful and and. Oftentimes I'll be down the hall and I'll see somebody needs something in their room. Like just those little touches mm-hmm. I find make make things flow a little bit easier for everybody too. Um, and our, our floor is really good at doing that. So uh, it all comes together. <laughs> Before you go, um, what's your last piece of advice um, as a strong advocate yourself for people with chronic conditions, particularly IBD? Um, what's your what's your piece of advice for those who are managing, who are trying to stay the course, who are trying to stay inspired, who are, you know, who could go either way? Um, you know, what what do you have to share for them? Yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> a really important question. Yeah. You know, and it's something that, you know, we we talk about um, within Crohn's and Colitis all the time is how do we best support our community? Mm-hmm. And yeah, for me, it comes down to, and it's not one piece of advice, you know, the, fir- the first piece would be to find your tribe, you know, it's not, and it may not be your family and your friends, but find that, that community of support because you'll be surprised. Like sometimes your greatest supporters are people you don't actually even know. Amazing. You know, I get so much love over Instagram from people I don't even know you know, where I haven't posted something in, in a couple of days and they check in and say, are you okay? Are you having a flare? Do you need anything? Oh my <laughs> God, that's beautiful. Yeah. So reach out to that community that is there to support you. Give yourself grace, recognizing that yes, it's important to try to do your best any given day, but your best is going to be different. It's going to look different than your family, your friends, your cohort. It's going to look different than your best yesterday. And that's okay, because that's just part of the process. Taking the time to rest. This is one, it's funny because, again, we're type A personalities and we feel compelled to do it all. And we almost feel like we have something to prove because we're chronically ill. And, and sometimes, sometimes that's, that, that's often self-imposed, but there's also this, this notion that sometimes people will, will see you as inspirational because you are overcoming life with a chronic illness. And then that pressure to be inspirational drives you to sometimes to your detriment mm-hmm. and because it's okay to say, no, our able-bodied, healthy cohort doesn't feel compelled to do it all we don't either right so take the time to address to to rest more than anything reach out for the mental health help that you need and i know i I keep coming back to this it's just it's something that i feel so strongly about because mental health is critical to overall health we do suffer from depression and anxiety at high rates we do have PTSD at a higher rate than the average population. And while that's normal for our population, we need to address it in order to really be well, holistically well. Yeah. Um, and remember, you're not a burden. You know, that's something that we all struggle with. I, I To this day, I, I feel that like there are times when I feel like, have I done enough for my kids? And my dad's like, you do more for your kids than able-bodied moms do for their kids. Just you've done enough, but there's this notion of, you know, am I enough? Am I a burden? And and so recognize that you're not a burden. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my over, my, my last thought would be, don't be afraid to dream, you know, and in fact, dream big because you're not your diagnosis. You are not statistics. Um, and you will achieve your goals if you work towards them. And yes, you know, pr- progress is never linear. It's not going to be linear for able-bodied, fully healthy individuals. You know, our process may be slower and may have more setbacks, but you will achieve your goals if you choose to be unstoppable, but you have to be committed to doing that. 
And so that would be my, my, I think my overarching message is there is hope and you can not just survive IBD, but you can thrive with IBD. Beautiful, Crystal. I just, I'm just taking it all in. Seriously. It's so, it's so true. And I I love that you just ended it with hope there. I think that's, and I think listening to this conversation, um, patients and providers alike, um, that I think the theme is definitely to hold on to hope through the dark times um, and find support, connect, know you're worthy of all of it, not, not compare yourself to others. Um, and yeah, and take extra care of yourself along the way. Thank yes. you so much for being here. Where can people connect with you? Oh, I, well, I'm very active on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at Gutsy Strong. And yeah, that's the, that's the best way to connect with me. And if, um, if we have listeners that have IBD and are looking for, to connect with yeah. um, other people in the community, I would highly, highly recommend you reach out to Crohn's and Colitis Canada. They can get you in contact with a local chapter. And it's just such a beautiful community of people of support. And yeah, I, 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 I found so much healing in that space. So reach out to Crohn's and Colitis Canada because the chapters, that's what we're here for. And we would love to welcome everyone. Love it. Thank you so much, Crystal, for being here. We'll add, maybe we can add then the website to Crohn's and Colitis Canada, would that be okay? That would be great. Okay, so that people could link up. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so glad you're here. You're such a delight. I literally could keep chatting with you, Um, but I appreciate you and your spirit. And uh, yeah, just keep shining your light and keep bringing people in. Like that's kind of what you're doing is you're creating this light for others to, to join and to know that there's support out there. So thank you. That's my goal. So that means a lot to me. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Crystal. So we'll keep in touch. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. So if you guys like this podcast, please subscribe and leave an honest review. Your feedback means everything to me. Your reviews are what moves this podcast forward, and I always appreciate receiving them. If you want to get a hold of me directly, reach out to me on social media. My handles are in the show notes, and you can always subscribe to my weekly newsletters at jennifergeorge.co so that we can stay connected. So until next time, thank you guys so much again for your ongoing support.